So in uh, thinking about topics to bring to a 10 a.m., um, a few years ago I did uh, Means of Grace as a topic. And the way I came about that was thinking about terminology that we use in the Reformed circles, that as you talk to an evangelical friend that's maybe not a Reformed Baptist or Presbyterian, is saying, what are you talking about? What does that term mean? Um, uh, examples of this uh, that Pat covered earlier this year was hypostatic union. I used that in a term or in a conversation with a friend, and he's like, what is the hypostatic union? So I think these terms are very useful to capture a very large um, idea or principle or doctrine, and instead of taking the time to explain it, you can say, okay, hypostatic union, and the, your audience, if they're reformed, knows what you're talking about, and you can kind of continue on. So, um, and thinking about what are the terms, like, pretty regularly I'll have conversations with friends, use even simple terms like justification, they're like, well, what, what is that? And then as you describe and explain, and you realize, well, maybe I'm not doing a good job at explaining this, maybe I don't understand this concept as well as I should um, and one of the ones that came to mind, which I've used a bunch recently in discussions with other uh, Reformed Baptist brethren, is the regulative principle of worship, um, also known as, and you'll see noted in um, places and articles as the RPW, uh, because it's kind of long. So the regulative principle of worship, um, I've used that a few times and, with friends, and then I tried to explain it to a non-Reformed friend, and I realized, oh, I should probably research this myself, and then, okay, who else? Do I know that's reform that maybe doesn't even know what this is? Uh, selfishly, I also wanted to research and study more on it. Um, for those that have done these, you, uh, a 10 a.m. like devotional or meditation, you'll realize uh, you know that half the th- you're probably the one that's learning the most <laughs> when you're sitting down and studying versus the, the congregation. Um, so essentially, the regulative principle of worship is what I kind of would like to outline, which essentially answers the question of why do we worship the way that we do? Um, why are our services ordered the way that they are? Like, why do our services look different from um, Catholic services or Anglican services or Water of Life or anything, any of those other churches, right? So there clearly are differences when you walk into a service like that that you're going to experience. So the regulative principle kind of outlines some of the whys behind that. Um, quickly, I'll go through like an outline here of what I'd like, what I'd like to go through. is One, a simple definition of what this is. Um, what is uh, the regulative principle of worship versus the normative principle, which would be the opposing view. Um, some biblical, or the kind of a history of the regulative principle in church history, really briefly. Um, some biblical references for, um, for this principle. Um, what does our confession say, and what do some other confessions say? Um, and then one of the key uh, pieces of the regulative principle is defining the difference between elements of worship and circumstances of worship. And then finally, some concluding remarks specifically on um, the RPW. I'll probably say RPW a bunch, um, so bear with me. Um, So the definition of the regulative principle of worship is essentially the doctrine of sola scriptura by scripture alone um, and having this applied to the church's worship. Um, Legan Duncan puts it, it is an extension of the reformational axiom sola scriptura. Um, so what's Sola Scriptura, right? It's up on our wall. Um, sola Scriptura, simply put, is the belief that scriptures are the highest and most ultimate authority in the life of the Christian. Um, so this applied to worship is as this. We are to worship God only in the way that he says, by scripture alone. Scripture tells us what worship pleases God. If something is religiously significant and the scripture does not prescribe it, it is forbidden. God is holy and is not to be worshipped by the imaginations of men. 
when we go through some of the biblical references, you'll see uh, how important this is and how very serious it is, especially in the Old, Old Testament and the Old Covenant, um, and how important it is that God is to be worshipped rightly. Um, I found a, a really good article specifically on us uh, by this, uh, the president of the Reformed Theological Seminary, Michael Kruger, and his article was, What Exactly is Sola Scriptura Protecting Us Against? Um, and he kind of uses three buckets of errors, um, and you can think of this in terms of what is the regulative principle protecting us against as well. So um, the three primary like big bucket errors, I guess you could say, is one, traditionalism. The church tradition is our guide, so you can see this in the Roman Catholic Church um, in using a lot of tradition that's not founded in Scripture. The next kind of bucket of error would be individualism. So this is American individualism is definitely... Uh, at play in terms of this error, the whole my own private Bible interpretation is is enough, and that's my guide. It's just me and my Bible. That's that's how worship is defined. That's also an, an error. And then lastly, existentialism was, is another kind of bucket in terms of concept or error that would be um, something that sola scriptura and the regulative principle would protect us against. And existentialism basically being he needs who needs the Bible? Religious experience is is enough. Um, kind of an example of, uh, of Sola Scriptura, and this is a quote from Luther. Um, so Luther was defying the Pope um, when he refused to recant the 95 Theses, um, and he wrote this statement in response to the Pope um, asking him to recant, and this is kind of highlights Sola Scriptura and, and worship. Luther says, I do not want to throw out all of those men more learned than I, but Scripture alone to reign and not to interpret it by my own spirit or the spirit of any man, but I want to understand it by itself and its spirit. <clears throat> um, Waldron states a very similar um, quote in his book uh, on the, the regulative principle. Um, it's actually back here. I'll, shameless plug, this is a new book um, that came out this year by Sam Waldron uh, called How Then Should We Worship? And it goes into great detail on the regulative principle. This was really useful as well as a lot of other things. But Waldron... Um, says, the focus of those seeking to order worship sola deo gloria must not be on human tradition or human invention or human pragmatism, but must be on scripture alone. Um, essentially the same thing that Luther was saying, right? Um, and I guess a side note, because we'll get into this in a moment, as it's interesting to see that Martin Luther and Lutherans, while holding to sola scriptura doctrinally, do not hold to this in corporate worship. So they may hold that in terms of their doctrine, um, uh, in terms of uh, their belief system, but they do not apply Sola Scriptura to their actual worship services. Um, so what's the opposite, or I don't know if I'd call it opposite, but what is the opposing view that's not regulative principle? This is the, uh, the normative principle. So, so quickly, the, uh, the, regulative, the regulative principle of worship maintains that Scripture gives specific guidelines for conducting our corporate worship services and that churches must not add anything to those guidelines. Um, generally, Reformed Baptist churches, uh, a lot of Baptists, Presbyterians are generally holding to this principle. It's a general statement. Um, the normative principle is the idea that anything not expressly forbidden by Scripture can be used in corporate worship. One of the foundational differences is that the former considers the Bible's instructions as a strict code of conduct, while the latter sees them as principles to follow. Um, many, if not most, evangelical churches today would hold to the normative principle um, as well as Lutheran, Anglican, Catholic, Episcopalians, and Orthodox churches as well. Um, that sounds kind of 
odd to say because those services are so drastically different, right? If you walked into uh, an evangelical church, it's not going to look anything like the Roman Catholic Church. But it kind of goes back to those um, errors that I mentioned. Is one of those is following more into the traditionalism error of embracing church tradition over scripture, and the other is more on the American individualism, individualism errors um, in terms of adding additional things. Um, so in, in history, and this will, I'll kind of touch on it a little bit more on the, on the Lutheranism comment, um, uh, the distinction, this is a, a comment, this is a pulled straight out of Waldron's book, um, is the distinction between these two principles first emerged in the controversies between the Reformed and the Lutherans in Europe. So the conservative reformation of Luther adopted the policy of preserving the worship of medieval Catholicism, except where it contradicted scripture. Calvin, on the other hand, adopted the principle that said that the contents of worship had to have warrant in scripture. Calvin's views seemed the same as those which Puritans later state. Um, And I actually have a a quote directly from one of those Puritans, uh, a Scottish theologian, James Bannerman, who's... um, there's a lot of, uh, because of the time that the Puritans spent in um, England, they, their personal experience was with the Anglican Church or the Church of England, who also, similarly to the Catholic Church, uh, hold, to, um, hold to that normative principle and church tradition over sola scriptura. Um, so they have a very um, fresh, in their memory, view of the church um, over uh, scriptures. Um, so here's, here's his outline on how the Puritans and the Anglican churches differ, and this, sh- um, this should sound also fam- familiar in terms of the normative principle uh, for a co- uh, any, any other evangelical church that would hold to the normative principle. He says, In the case of the Church of England, or the Anglican Church, its doctrine in regard to church power and the worship of God is that it has the right to decree everything except what is forbidden in the word of God. In the case of our own church, the Puritans, its doctrine is in reference to church power and the worship of God is that it has a right to decree nothing except what expressly or by implication is enjoined by the word of God. Um, so that kind of get that was helpful to uh, when I was reading through that to understand why um, why the why these churches are ordered differently and why their worship services are a little different why they have their content of their uh, worship services are different. Um, Next, I'd like to kind of go through a bunch of biblical references that we can go back to Genesis and, and see why God is why the way God is to be worshipped is so important. Um, so, from the very beginning, in the first scriptural occasion, which worship is mentioned, is the Cain and Abel narrative. So you see Abel's worship being pleasing to God, and Cain's was not. Um, and I'll read this uh, Genesis four three through five. Um, And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. As you can see, all the way at the very beginning, that God cares very much about how he is to be worshipped. Probably the biggest uh, Old Testament example would be or the most explicit, I guess you would say, would be um, the first table of the law found in the first four commandments, um, which is found in Exodus 23 through 8. They all deal largely with worship, um, and primarily the first table of the law deals with how, man's, how man is to live in relation to God, the second table being man, man's relations to man. Um, because of that first table and that, those first four commandments, this tells us the worship of God is a primary issue 
one that God takes with uh, blood earnest seriousness. Um, let me read Exodus 23 through 8, just as a reminder of that first, uh, the first table. Um, Exodus 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers, fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And verse 8, I remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Um, another example from the Old Testament in terms of how important and specific God is in his worship um, would be the, in the actual the construction of the furniture and the garments of worship um, found in Exodus 25 through 30 in those chapters. Um, in Exodus 30, 33, and 38, God specifically promises the death penalty for the misuse of anointing, oil, and incense. So from this, it is apparent that God is meticulous in how he ought to be worshipped. The fact that there's the de- death is the result of misuse of worship, um, I think, is really important. Um, and then, lastly, from a specifically from the Old Testament examples, um, God's example and His specificity on worship is in found in Leviticus and then Nadab and Abihu um, uh, story. So this is Leviticus ten one through two, and this is very very much related to that last um, misuse of anointing oils and incense. Uh, now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. So we can see God warning that the death, that the death penalty for misuse um, will occur, and then we see that actually occur here with Nadab and Abihu. Um, I'd like to go through what our confession says. Um, in, the, in our hymnal, it's page 682, if you want to follow along. Uh, I initially pulled in the Westminster and the London Baptist. Um, they're both identical in their terminologies, um, for, and at least specifically for chapters 22. So uh, page 682. And then, let's see. And then uh, paragraph one. <clears throat> the light of nature shows that there is a God who hath lordship and sovereignty over all, is just, good, and doth good unto all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart and all the soul and with all the might. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imagination and devices of men, nor the suggestions of Satan under under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. And I initially had both of them up here to read, and then I realized, oh, no, they're actually identical wording um, in terms of how we are to worship God. Um, another section, another paragraph, um, I actually have the Westminster verbiage, which is probably the same, 
uh, in chapter 20, or actually uh, in our London Baptist, it'll be chapter 21, which is page 681, so flip back a page. Um, and if we're looking at paragraph 2 in chapter 21, and it reads, God alone is Lord of the conscience, and hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to his word, or not contained in it, so that to believe such doctrines or obey such commands out of, his, out of conscience is to betray true liberty of conscience, and the requiring of an implicit faith and absolute and blind obedience is to destroy liberty of conscience and reason also. Um, and Waldron had a good comment on this, cha- this chapter uh, in the Confession. He says, According to this statement, Sola Scriptura has a different application to matters of faith and worship than it does to the rest of life. In the rest of life, it means that we are free from the commands of men that are contrary to the word. In matters of faith and worship, it means that we are even free from the commands of men that are beside or not contained in the word. Um, and I, kind of, I think I'll use that to wrap up the, um, the um, reading of the confession and kind of see where directing worship is found in our confession. Um, and then I'll touch on elements of worship versus circumstances and then wrap up with a, kind of some, conclusion, some concluding thoughts. Um, so... Um, there, there, this another, the other terminology that I've also heard, until I did the study, I didn't really understand the differences of the terms of what, what is an element versus a circumstance of worship, and that these, um, these definitions will explain kind of why you see differences in, in terms of worship services. <clears throat> so I'll kind of read the definitions here. An element being an essential property that something must have, it is that which makes it what it is. Um, and we'll also, I'd like to read a section of Acts later on that we'll, we'll see um, the elements of worship kind of outlined in the early church. And then a circumstance being a non-essential property that is related to the elements, but that can be changed without affecting the element. Um, elements of worship are prescribed by Scripture, whereas circumstances of worship naturally accompany these elements. Um, I found a really good um, quote that specifically outlines these differences with a few kind of examples. Um, and this is Pastor Wes Brendenhoff in an article on distinguishing the difference between these. He says, When it comes to public worship, Reformed theologians have often distinguished between elements and circumstances. Elements are the things God commanded in Scripture for public worship, things like preaching, singing, and reading of Scripture, prayers, etc. Elements are governed by the regulative principle of worship. Circumstances are the incidental things which surround the elements. Circumstances like the time of worship, whether we have pews or chairs or both. Um, uh, Times that we, the different service times, temperature in the room, etc. Things like that are, would fall under the circumstances of worship. Circumstances are not governed by command from the Bible, but are directed by wisdom and discretion that should be informed by the Bible. Um, note, uh, I, I put a note here to kind of mention it. I think I've already kind of touched on it, but the elements and circumstances, specifically circumstances, would explain why um, we, have so, we all have similar worship services. If you were to go to a, a sister church, you're going to have a, all of the elements are going to be identical to how we worship here. Just the circumstances and whether they have uh, pews or whether they have... Um, there'll be differences in terms of personality and style of that church, which would fall under that circumstance category, but you're going to always come away real, like there's going to be that checkbox of the elements were observed um, in those services. 
It's why you feel at home when you go to another Reformed Baptist church, because you're partaking in those same elements. It's just in their own character and style of that church, if you will. Um, From the scriptures, we see formal worship being composed of at least four major elements. Um, There's a section, I think, later on here I'd like to to read here from our London Baptist Confession that goes into very detailed descriptions of the elements of worship. Um, But I'd like to read in Acts 2, um, verses 41 through 47. This is the, the very, very early description of church life just after Pentecost. So Acts 2, 41 is where I'll start. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And we came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So here in Acts 2, verse 42 specifically, we see the clear description of four of the most basic elements that you'd have in a church service or in a church, um, devoting themselves to apostles' teaching, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. So the apostles' teaching, this is a, a general, um, this could be applied specifically to the ministry of the word as a whole. Um, I, there's like an entire chapter in Waldron's book that dives really deep into each of these in, in terms of like how the, how the translations inform our understanding of this. Um, the fellowship, uh, he has a whole section on as well, which I found really useful. This is uh, including formal giving and financial contributions, um, the breaking of bread. This is specifically in reference to the sacrament at the Lord's table. Um, Waldron, in his chapter on this, specifically notes that the breaking of bread seems to be an ordinary or regular part of the formal worship. It seems to have been as regular a part of the worship of the church as the apostles' teaching, contributions, and the prayers. So this speaks in favor of a more regular celebration of the Lord's table as part of worship rather than once a year or twice a year. You can see it outlined that it's a very common act that the church is regularly participating in. And then lastly, number four is, is the prayers. Um, so these are like core basic pillars or elements. Um, our, our confession of faith um, goes into a little more detail and outlining um, other elements. Um, and actually, I didn't write down the page number. But um, Linda Baptist Confession, chapter 22, paragraph 5, outlines in detail the elements. Um, I believe that's 681 I could, or 682. So chapter 22, paragraph 5, the London Baptist Confession says, The reading of the scriptures, preaching and hearing the word of God, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in our hearts to the Lord, as also the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper are all parts of religious worship of God to be performed in obedience to Him with understanding, faith, reverence, and godly fear. Moreover, solemn humiliation with fastings and thanksgivings upon special occasions ought to be used in a holy and religious manner. 
there's a few more than four listed there, but I, I think it's, it's the confession really outlining all the other variations um, of, uh, of the elements that are to be had in corporate worship. <coughs> um, I have three concluding remarks. I initially wanted to come up with one conclusion, but I found three really good differing conclusions from different articles. Waldron's the last one I'll read. Um, but they all kind of touch on three different ideas. One being, the, the first one I'll read is primarily to keep, words to keep in mind when we think about brethren that do not hold to the regulative principle of worship, but are still Christians that we, we, should, um, we should have fellowship with or that are friends that maybe disagree and are, hold to the normative principle rather than the regulative principle. Um, and then the second, second um, kind of concluding thoughts are words to keep in mind in terms of Reformed brethren that may hold to the regulative principle but disagree in terms of circumstances of worship. Um, and then lastly, there's a, a section, there's a whole, um, there's two paragraphs I'd like to read from Waldron specifically on the liberty that we have through the regulative principle and sola scriptura um, to kind of close this out. So uh, this first section I'd like to, to read is uh, specifically, uh, and I'll finish this little first concluding section from uh, with a Charles Spurgeon quote as well. <clears throat> um, I'm going to read this here. It says, We need a renewed faith in the f- sufficiency of Scripture in the church today. The abundance of church growth books shows that people are looking for something new to implement in the church, and there are a multitude of programs to help grow churches and get more people in the pews. Our focus, however, should not be on worldly things such as these, but on Christ building his church his way. Certainly, many of those striving to build the church via the normative principle or other approaches that allow more latitude with elements um, of worship have good motives. Although we may not agree with them, we should not be too quick to judge these people. However, we must stand firm, remain faithful to Sola Scriptura, and continue to make the case for why the regulative principle is the most effective way to ensure that God's word is followed, thus fostering worship which is acceptable and pleasing to God." Charles, Charles Spurgeon uh, expresses the same concern back in 1888, and he says, There is no need to go down to Egypt for help. To invite the devil to help Christ is shameful. Please, God, we shall see prosperity yet when the church of God is resolved never to seek it except in God's own way. And then the, some remarks specifically on um, disagreements in terms of circumstances of worship. I think this is important because... Um, there, these definitely do exist in terms of discussion and debate across our Reformed brethren. I think we need to keep this in mind to, to have grace uh, for those. Um, and he's, uh, This says, while these disagreements can be quite intense at times, we would do well to note the broad consensus existing amongst confessionally Reformed churches. There's unanimous agreement that things like the time of the worship services and the type of seating are circumstantial. Whether you worship in a custom-built church building or use a school gymnasium, God-pleasing worship in spirit and truth can happen regardless. Conversely, we all agree that what matters are the God-commanded elements. Without elements like the reading and preaching of Scripture and prayer, you simply don't have Reformed worship. You have something less than authentic Christian worship. Because of our love for the Savior and what He has done, we want to follow His Word carefully when it comes to the content of our worship. But we'll also be careful about imposing our own opinions where God has granted liberty to be different. And then we've kind of touched a little bit on the liberty that the regular principle grants us, if you will. Um, and Waldron has a section on, on this, and then he kind of closes out in terms of focusing on how these elements are means of grace. 
Waldron writes, this is pulled straight out of that book. Um, the regulative principle is liberating. Here again, we see that the word of God is a law of liberty. The force of the regulative principle is to deliver us from the authority of men in our worship. It frees us from human doctrines, rights, and commandments. It frees us to worship God simply in the way of his appointment. It frees the people of the church from pastoral tyranny. It frees the pastor of the church from congregational tyranny. It frees everybody simply to do what God says. And then lastly, we must not make these elements of Christian worship ends in themselves, but means of grace. They are not Christ. They are windows through which we may see Christ. They are not grace, but fountains through which grace is brought to us. We do not say Christ and not the ordinances, nor ordinances and not Christ, nor the ordinances as Christ, but Christ in and through the ordinances. Seek Christ in his ordinances of formal worship. Thanks.